Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 216, Top 10 Games Set in Cities. We'd like to thank our brand new Patreon backers, Brendan, Kenny, and B1231Games. You all rock! Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast of board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. Anthony, it is the beginning of the end for some of our favorite intellectual properties, or better known as Game of Thrones, Avengers, and just a whole bunch of movies, not to mention, of course, the Star Wars trilogy. The new trilogy is also coming to an end, so... A really exciting time for all the things that we love to see in the theater. Yeah, dude, it's crazy. Uh, this month is already exhausting. Like, I'm like, okay, I got to stay up every Sunday from here on out because we've got Game of Thrones. And they're going to be long, like an hour and a half long. So we'll be up super late. We've got Star Wars Celebration is this week. So we're going to see the new movie title probably and all that. And then the big, big, big one, Avengers at the end of the month where... I'm trying to figure out how I can carve three hours out of one of my days to go see that. So. <laughs> oh good good problems to have first world problems great (laughs) absolutely (laughs) yeah there's a lot of great stuff out there and i was trying to talk my game group into doing a game of thrones board game day and then run it into the game of thrones episode but they're a little tentative because the board game is a little kind of rough to play if you've never played the game before but it's actually still a really cool game and there's a recent expansion that brings in the Targaryen. So if you haven't checked that out, please do so. I think it makes the game better. It kind of fixes some of the rules that were a little wonky, especially if you didn't have a full player count. So something you might want to think about before you sit down and watch Game of Thrones. Yeah, I don't have a group for that, but I definitely want to play. I, I've had a <laughs> copy of that game for like five years and I've still not played it, but I refuse to get rid of it because I'm like, it's going to happen. I'm going to do it. It's going to happen someday. <laughs> True. I think there's that Thanos game, right? If you wanted to play that kind of like mass market Thanos game before the movie. That is much more accessible. Yeah, that one's easy to get out because it's like super like my son can play it. He's seven and it's a it's a pretty accessible co-op. So that's a good one. Yeah, I think finally there really isn't anything for the new Star Wars movies, at least in board game format. That's not kind of a mass market kind of pickup. There's a lot of really cool games but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. How about you? They did announce a new one coming out like sometime in the summer, Outer Rim, which I think is like a, it's not new trilogy related at all. I think it's actually more related to like the underworld smugglers, bounty hunters, that kind of stuff. But sure. uh, I have my eye on it. It looks like it's more story narrative driven. And mm-hmm. I don't know, their games in that realm of late have not been interesting to me, but it's Star Wars, so I'll probably buy it. And I'll let you guys know what I think. <laughs> so. Sure. I think the best you could do for the new trilogy is some of the new ships that they have for the X-Wing miniatures game. But beyond that, any Star Wars game pretty much will do. So great films to look forward to. I guess we'll be talking about those as they finally hit the movie screen and the small screen on the TV. But let's talk about some board games, Anthony. We got a great episode here and a lot's going on with BGA. And before we get into all that kind of fun stuff, let's start off with a big bang. Let's talk about our Patreon contest. All right. Yep. So you guys know the drill by now. Every single week, we're giving away a board game to one of our backers on Patreon, anybody at the producer level or higher. And last week, we gave away Root to William, courtesy of Game Surplus. They help us out with this. And uh, this week's contest winner is Keith. So congratulations to Keith. He is the winner of a game of his choice. We'll send him a big, long list here after we record this and before next week's episode. 
and then that game will be on its way to him. Well, congratulations to Keith. We're looking forward to seeing that game hitting your table. Now, we have another big kind of announcement to make and something that you might have already seen on our Facebook page, and that is our upcoming charity board game day. Now, each and every year, Board Gamers Anonymous gets together with local charities and local friendly game stores to put on a charity event to raise money for people in need. And this year is no different. This year, we're working with Fanwood Presbyterian Church that has several charities that they support, including a local outreach to people who are hungry and need of food and an international outreach to high school students that are looking for college education. So two great charity opportunities to reach out to. So we put together a charity board game day for that. Now, this charity board game day will happen in Fanwood, New Jersey. So if you happen to be in Fanwood, New Jersey on May 4th, so just think May the 4th be with you and also free comic book day. So a lot of good stuff happening that day. We will be doing new and classic games. We'll have a kind of a makeshift game library there that's going to be sponsored by some local friendly game stores and some gamers who are going to bring some games to teach other people. We're going to have a board game auction. So some stuff that'll be auctioned off will be donations that have been made to us. And if you are a gamer like us who have a ridiculous number of games that never get to the table and you would like to have an opportunity to auction those games off, we're just asking for a $10 donation and you keep all the proceeds from your auction. We're also going to have raffles, food, prizes, and generally it's going to be family-friendly fun. So if you want to bring out the kids, this would be a great spot. We're going to have people teaching games to little kids and families who are just new to gaming. Once again, this happened Saturday, May 4th, 2019 from 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. at the Fanwood Presbyterian Church in Fanwood, New Jersey. You can find out all of these details links to our charities and videos about the charities on our Facebook page and there'll be an event attached to it. We really want you to RSVP. So if you happen to be in the area, please come down for the day. Anthony and I will be there hosting the event, playing games. So it's a good time to connect with us. And even if you're not in the area, but you would like to donate to the charity, there is a link there as well. Thank you all so much for supporting us on these charity events. It's a great thing that we be able to kind of reach out and serve the community and obviously be able to support more people in need each and every year. All right, Anthony, so that's what's happening with BGA. A lot of great stuff out there. Once again, thanks all our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. And thanks everyone for helping us with a charity event, whether you're volunteers, you're donators, or you're just coming down for a day of fun. We really do appreciate that. What's our question of the week? All right, yeah. So I had a, a question here about what is the worst first play experience you've ever had with a game you ended up enjoying? So this happens to everybody. You play a game for the first time, you think to yourself, wow, that was garbage. And then somehow someone drags you back into the game later and you're like, oh, actually, it's not garbage. I would, that other experience was just horrible. This one popped into my head because I had a friend who invited me over to play a game of Zaya. And while I have not had a chance to play it again since my first experience, which was horrific um, <laughs> and, and haven't been able to yet go out and play it again, I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because I think every game deserves a second try, <laughs> especially because the expansion apparently fixes some stuff. I figured I'd ask people if they'd had similar experiences that had come up. So uh, we did get a handful of answers. 
Uh, Andrew mentions Tiny Epic Galaxies. His first play was with a group he did not know and was a five-player game. Two players spent so much time analyzing their moves, the game took close to three hours. Tiny Epic Galaxies. (laughs) He says, quote, every turn was, so if I do this, then you could do that, and then that, so I should do this, or maybe I should do X, which means you would do that, but really you should do this. Sounds like the Princess Bride. I Gosh, it's such a small game to do that with. Darren mentioned Scythe. I've heard several people say this, actually. I don't know what it is about Scythe in particular, if it's how it's taught or the number of players or just AP or downtime or whatever it is. I didn't have this experience, thankfully, but several people I know have been like, nope, not playing that. First experience was horrible. We have uh, David Bryson mentioned Seven Wonders. He played with a group of experienced people. They gave him a player board left him to fend for himself without very much explanation. And uh, he said, I love teaching games and I often draw on this experience to ensure others never feel the same way. Um, I actually had the exact same experience with Seven Wonders. My first play of this was almost exactly that. And I went for weeks being like, this game sucks because <laughs> so, I can't figure out what I'm supposed to do. Once I figured out what I was supposed to do, I was like, oh, this is might be very good. Uh, and then Kyle, <laughs> last one here, Kyle mentions, uh, and Kyle's, you know, a friend here in Pittsburgh. He uh, mentions Blood Rage, which is another one that comes up a lot, is if you do not teach this game well and what the various strategies are and what the different types of cards are, the people who know the game are going to absolutely obliterate the people who don't. So he said the person who taught it ended up with 200 plus points more than anyone else at the table, which I have seen happen don't be that teacher, guys. Don't be that teacher. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I had a really bad experience the first time I played Brass, the original version, with its really, really bad components and money. And it was just a very different type of game. For those people who have not been involved in, I, I guess, stock trading types of games, typically when you play a game, you're like, oh, cool. These are my things, and these are my connections, and this is the stuff that I'm shipping. And then you play a game like Brass or 18XX games, and you're like, wow, these are my things that you're using. Okay? So the the concept is very different if you haven't played those games previously. I think we were playing super late at night. The teacher wasn't really the best at trying to explain this game, and my brain was not you know, you know, syncing up with the kind of gameplay element to it. But once the new version came out, I was like, ah, I remember this from long ago. It was a, it was a terrible experience, but nonetheless, I sat down and played it and I really, really enjoyed it. I was like, oh, I get it now. I understand where all the fun and the greatness (laughs) is to it. So yeah, I'm a big fan of brass now, which is really, really strange considering how bad it was the first time I actually played the game. So if you do have a bad experience the first time, definitely try the game out a second time, maybe with a different group or after watching a video or two or reading the rule book. Sometimes even in the with their best intentions, teachers make somewhat problematic choices in teaching. And, you know, sometimes it's just you're getting blown out and it's just never a good game when you're getting blown out of something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, Food Chain Magnet was like that. My first play of that was just the most painful experience. Uh, in my board gaming life, I just three and a half hours, an hour into the game, I knew I had lost and I just spent the rest of the game getting pummeled and pummeled because I didn't understand the advertising and really the flow of things until about halfway through the game. Sure. And 
after that game, I, it was like on my mind for two or three days. And so I was like, I have to play this again because I can't stop thinking about how stupid I was and how I could have played it differently. And, and thankfully, when I did play it again, I still lost, but not by as much. And I had fun that time. That could easily have been a game where I played it once and never played it again because that first experience was not fun. <laughs> so. All right. So that's everything for our question of the week. If you'd like to reach out to us, please hit us up on our social media, Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com has a ridiculous number of articles and content of there. Obviously, Every Night is Game Night is our other sister podcast with a lot of great content there. And of course, don't forget our Patreon.com slash BGA. We have our special Patreon-backed episodes there. A lot of great content for you to be able to delve into and learn more about Board Gamers Anonymous and all the great games we played and some of the really terrible ones that we played and then played them again and liked them even more the second time. So, Anthony, let's talk about the games that we want to hit the table. What's with your acquisition stories for this week? This happens to me sometimes. I, I got an email about a, a game I apparently backed on Kickstarter that I forgot about called Ragusa. And this is from Braincrack Games and Capstone's bringing it to the US, but I'm getting the Kickstarter version. And it's this is not my acquisition disorder because I already acquired, but <laughs> it's on the way. But it's uh, kind of thematic for today's episode because this one is based on the legendary city of Ragusa in what is now Croatia. And they have another game coming to Kickstarter at the end of the year, Venice. So another game based on a city. This one I'm very interested in, and I hopefully don't forget about it, partially because it's co-designed by David Turchi, who has designed a lot of really good games of late. Dice Settlers, he worked in Teotihuacan, Anachrony, all these other big, huge games that I absolutely love. And this one has some interesting elements to it. So it's an economic game, takes place in Venice. You have gondolas um, as merchants that you're moving around the city, and you'll be training assistants, completing contracts, and just kind of basic Euro stuff. So you're going to move around from point to point. Every time you pass an assistant, something will trigger. So it's got kind of that build-up mechanism to it. But you can only train the assistant that you stop next to. But the really interesting part of this that I'm, I'm looking forward to is that it has kind of a spying element to it. As you do different things, as you pass other players' boats, your suspicion level is going to go up. And... You need to manage that. So you need to keep your suspicion down. You need to like donate to the church, give money to different like the universities. Or, you know, you could just say, forget it. I'm going to go all in on the bad stuff and actually break the rules, quote unquote, of Venice and uh, trying to get more points that way. The downside, of course, is it's one of those games where if you have the most suspicion, you lose the game. So <laughs> regardless of how many points you have, I always really like that mechanic. Because someone always goes all in and someone else is always like, goes like, okay, I can go 80% in. And then maybe the other person pulls back at the end. And that person who went 80% in is like, oh no. <laughs> um, it adds a really interesting element of uh, interaction to a Euro that you don't typically see. I'm not a huge, huge pickup and deliver fan, but I like the idea of the root building here. I love just the general um, aesthetic of the game. Uh, this looks really nice. And then that interaction looks to be really interesting, plus the pedigree of the designers. So this is a game I have on my radar. Looking forward to it. Uh, they said the Kickstarter is quarter three or quarter four. So sometime at the end of the year. All right. So a game that I'm looking forward to seeing hit the table is Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage, the board game from Dungeons and Dragons. Now, 
if you are a board gamer and not an RPG player and don't delve into D&D, then you may not know how popular this whole kind of Dungeons and Dragons board games are. These are kind of these massive miniatures games that have been out for quite some time. There are several of them just that take the different realms of Dungeons and Dragons. Now, you probably have had an opportunity to play Lords of Waterdeep and maybe even the Skuldrons of Skullport expansion that you can play along with the game. And that game, at least on an abstract level, is all about these powerful lords that are lurking behind the scenes, and they're sending out adventurers to do their dirty work in order to kind of gain power. Now, in Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage, the board game version of this, what you're basically looking at is a dungeon crawl. So you're looking at miniatures, in this case, painted miniatures which are really nice and they're fantastic this game is actually produced by WizKids, so you're getting a decent production for the miniatures and the components in the game and basically what you're doing is you are one of several adventurers that are being drawn down to the underworld of Waterdeep. and as one of these five heroic adventurers you are trying to figure out what you know dirty deeds are going on beneath the city as you explore, you encounter the dungeon of the Mad Mage. And this mage is doing some really terrible things, and he is setting up a trap for all of you. So as you go through the dungeon and encounter all of these different wicked, undead, and monstrous creatures, the mage is putting up all these different traps and encounters to kind of lure you in even further, and you are there to kind of battle all these kind of baddies throughout the game. Now, the game itself is very streamlined. So if you haven't played a classic kind of dungeon crawl game with miniatures, this is something that you could definitely manage if you're coming from a board gamer to kind of more of a miniatures kind of dungeon crawl type of situation. If you've already played these D&D games previously, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. This one is a lot more streamlined. The paint job is pretty fantastic here. And you are going to find some, I guess, minor RPG elements in this game. So I would recommend this game if you were thinking about getting into miniatures games but haven't taken that step yet, but really did enjoy the Lords of Waterdeep. Or if you're just looking for a dungeon crawl, and D&D is a really good place to look for that because they do a solid game, whichever ones you pick up. And this seems to be the one that's most streamlined. And with the painted miniatures here, they look fantastic. I don't think you could go really go wrong with this. All right, Anthony, so that's everything from our acquisition stores. Let's get on to the games that have been hitting our table this week. We're going to let you know if those games are a buy, you should go out and pick those games up. If those games are a play, you should sit down and play them. Those games are a dodge, and you should avoid them at all costs. Or if those games are the dreaded burn, you should burn those games down and check something else out. Okay, Anthony, what do you have for us this week? All right, yeah, so I have uh, another expansion from Uwe Rosenberg. Woo! <laughs> This dude released so many expansions, and this is one that I didn't even realize was an expansion until I got it, and that's Caverna Cave versus Cave Era 2, The Iron Age, The Attack of the Colons. It's so many subtitles. Wow. Um, it's, <laughs> Caverna Cave versus Cave is a two-player or the one or two-player version of Caverna, so it's kind of a back and forth, very quick, very accessible, one of my favorite two-player games because it just takes everything that makes Caverna work and just boils it down to the bare essence of the game. The Iron Age adds a second half to that game. So originally I thought this was a new game. It was like a sequel that has new mechanics or whatever it might be. But what it really is, is 
you play through Caverna, Cave versus Cave, and then you reset a few things, score the first half, and then play the Iron Age as the second half of your game. Uh, so all the rules are basically the same. Uh, and it's a, how that ends up working is you have a board in front of you, you are excavating the different um, bits and pieces of ore off the board so that you can place rooms down there. It's a worker placement game. There's a action board in the middle of the table where you take tiles to take actions and you alternate with the, your opponent. Pretty simple stuff. You have a track that keeps, you know, organizes all your different goods, which are like wheat and flax and um, all these different things that you can pick up. The new version uh, or the expansion here that adds the second half to the game, it gives you a new cave board, a sideboard. So your original cave stays where it is. You finish the game, you score it, you write it down on the score pad they give you. You leave all your rooms on the board. So these are all going to trigger and do their things as you move forward. And then you add the sideboard. And the sideboard is going to bring in a bunch of new rooms. So you're going to have um, eight new uh, spaces to excavate and new action tiles, of course, to go with it. You add another expansion to the action board itself. So there's four new spaces there. Each of those actions has like a bonus action below it. So when you take those actions, you'll get to take the bonus action with it. So that's kind of a cool extra thing. You're also going to have the four workers that you had at the end of the original game for all four of those turns. So it's only four versus the seven that you had originally, but they're 16 total actions. So um, ends up being like just doubling the game for you. There's also donkeys now. Um, you have iron and you have the exploration or weapons, however you want to think of it, like the questing symbol from the original game. And the general idea is all the same. Nothing really changes mechanically here. There's a few new little tweaks and quirks to the game, um, like the weapons, of course. And these are worth more points at the end of the game. Um, the gold is actually worth less in the Iron Age, the second half. Uh, originally, the first half of the game, the original game, each gold is worth one point. In the Iron Age, the second half, each gold is worth half a point. But your weapons, your exploration, those are worth double points. So... It, it kind of balances out uh, as long as you convert everything appropriately. There's, so again, a few new actions. There's a lot more ore to pull out here now. And so the donkeys can be used to excavate ore, which can then in turn be used to upgrade your weapons. Some of the rooms are much more powerful and offer you know new upgraded things you can do. It's not like a mind-blowing change to the game, though. It's pretty much the same thing. It just turns what was a 20 or 25-minute game into a 45-minute game to an hour, which is good if you want to make it a little bit more robust. There are rules in there if you just want to play the second half, like how to start it, uh, how to set everything up. I didn't really enjoy that very much because it just felt like you were jumping into the middle of a game because you are. So it's definitely better if you've been playing Cave versus Cave and just felt like it ended too early and want to just do a little bit more with your engine that's what this is for so i enjoyed it i don't know how often i'll use it just because cave versus cave is kind of a filler for me anyways i don't think of it as like a big full long two-player experience i have other games for that but i do like what it adds i like the new rooms i like the additional abilities you get i like the fact that the original rooms that you built in the first half of the game are still active, so you can keep triggering those and getting the bonuses that you would get from them. I like that you continue to have four actions in every round, and I love that the score kind of doubles up. So you now you have scores like up around 200 instead of 100. Um, 
so yeah, it's a lot of fun. And if you really like Cave vs. Cave, check it out. If you don't play Cave vs. Cave often enough to warrant a longer version of that, it's probably not for you. So this is a solid play, worth checking out if you like the game. Not a necessary expansion by any means, but kind of a fun you know, boost to it if you get a lot of play out of it already. And that's uh, Cave vs. Cave, The Iron Age. Yeah, it's really interesting because Rosenberg games always feels to me that they end a little too short. And sometimes that's good because you don't want your engine running too long and then it kind of gets a little bit boring. But nonetheless, I really do love Cave versus Cave as a two-player game, and I love Caverna. So this expansion seems like it's more of the same, which is great, I guess. And as you mentioned, if I want the game to run a little bit longer and I do have the time, maybe I'll play this because other than Caverna and other than Agricola and I guess one or two other kind of hits and misses, this is something interesting to me because it adds on a game that I already do love. So it's something I'll probably pick up at some point. Yeah. And the cool thing is, like you mentioned, like an engine runs too long. It's not as much yes. fun. This game handles that interestingly and in that it takes the engine you have and it doesn't dismantle it, but it shifts it so if you have a gold engine that's great but now gold is worth half as many points in the second half so you need to convert that gold over to something else so you still have to build kind of a new engine to go with it you now you need a weapons engine or you need an ore engine and you need to be able to convert stuff over so it handles it well while at the same time not taking away all the stuff you've already done so i do like all of that it's just uh it's limited situations i would think in which this yeah two player games are hard to get to the table as it is All right, so I want to talk about a game that was recently on Kickstarter and it's been hitting the table everywhere. This is Architects of the West Kingdom. Now, there's been a couple of different, I guess, versions of this game that's been out there. And Architects of the West Kingdom, for me, is probably the best version out there. And in the game, basically what you're looking at, it's around 850 AD and you're a royal architect. You're once again, as all architects try to do at that time, they try to impress the king and upgrade their royal status by collecting resources, hiring apprentices, utilizing different buildings. And then, of course, because this is a competitive game, you are trying to lock up other architects' workers. Okay, (laughs) that's a thing in this game, and it's actually a very big thing in this game. But let me go into that in a little more detail. So the board setup is pretty simple. You are going to have the different apprentices that are going to be laid out in the bottom right-hand corner, and you're going to pick them up for a number of different reasons. First off, they can give you an option of giving you additional resources or transforming a resource into something else. So that's a pretty big part of the game. And on top of that, there are going to be a certain type of artisan or they're going to be a woodcutter or a craftsperson and you're going to need these apprentices in order to build the different buildings that you're going to start off with or be able to collect throughout the game now that's one major mechanic of the game there's also the cathedral which is going to require you giving up certain building cards and certain resources to move up as far as your royal status in the church is concerned. And you'll gain victory points because, once again, this is a Euro game, and it's all about the victory points in the game. Now, beyond those two main mechanics, the rest of the game primarily is all about getting resources, and the board reflects that. You have this little tiny hamlet of a town, and you are sending your workers out to different spots. Now, what's interesting about this mechanic is when you place one worker down, Typically, but depends on the building, you're going to get one of a certain type of resource. You get wood or stone or or brick. But 
if you add another worker, instead of just getting one more, you're going to get two. And if you add a third worker, you'll get three. And you add a fourth worker, you'll get four. Now, there are a lot of spots on the board, and some spots don't act that way. Some spots, like the black market, are going to give you a special ability or resource at a cost. Your reputation might move down. You'll have to pay taxes. There's also a place where you can actually build. There's going to be being able to build on the cathedral or build your own particular buildings. And there's obviously spots where you transfer resources. But as you build up your workers in particular spots, your opponents are going to take an action to capture or arrest your workers and then put them in their own personal tower. Now, why do they do this? Well, it's a kind of an interesting mechanic here because you're going to start with a lot of workers depending on if you play the regular setup or the asymmetrical setup, which is going to alter how many workers you start off with. But basically, you're going to get about 20 workers. It's a lot of workers for a worker placement game. But eventually, you're going to be running out of workers. So the person who's captured your workers at some point is going to send them off to prison and they're going to score money for each worker they send that way. You, on that hand, is going to have an opportunity to take those workers from prison by taking an action, or there's also a special action you can take to take all those workers out from the various towers of the various players playing during the game. So now you have an opportunity to collect your workers because otherwise you can't recall them from the game board. And that's pretty much it as far as the game is concerned. As I mentioned, Silversmith the forest, the town center to kind of wrap up the people. The game is pretty nice. I mean, the artwork is a little different for my taste as far as it almost looks a little too cartoony for the gameplay is concerned, but it, it kind of works. The, the board itself is a nice quality. The artwork is nice. The graphic design is the one thing that really throws me about this game. It's a very light to medium weight worker placement game. And yet the iconography is something that I have to keep looking back at the rule book and going, all right, so this means moving the workers to the tower. This card refers to taking victory points from somebody. But it's just it's a very confusing iconography that no matter how many times I play it, I always have to check back. Now, as I mentioned, the worker capture system is a little odd. The cathedral is a little small spot where you can get victory points, but it's not required. And because the buildings and the apprentice cards are random, because there's a lot of them in the game, that's typically a good thing. Your success based upon a particular strategy probably will be greatly hindered by that. But in all, you know, if you're going to play a light and fast game, and we can probably knock this game out in, I would say, about 45 minutes once you have everyone play the game, Architects of the West Kingdom is a light play it's enjoyable for what it is. And if you want to check this out, I'd recommend it. Yeah, I had a chance to play this not too long ago as well. I liked it. Worker placement tends to be a mechanic that I generally enjoy if you do something clever with it. I like the worker capture mechanic. I just don't feel like it, they did quite as much with it as they could have. Now, that's not to say there won't be expansions. I hope there are because I want to see where that kind of leads to naturally. But as it is, you know, it's, it's kind of a light midweight game that doesn't offer too much, um, especially once you've played it a couple times. So it's uh, I think I agree with you on the rating. It's just I, I want there to be more. You know, I want to like this more. Uh, and I think I could if they just add a little bit more content. Absolutely. To it. All right, Anthony. So let's get on to our feature review. So for this week's feature review, we are talking about the top 10 games set in cities. 
we like to take a look at top tens a little differently. We try to kind of thematically try to see what games fit best into certain categories. And for example, if you like to play a game that's based in a city or a game that teaches you a little bit about a city or a game that engages you in some interesting mechanics that reflect the city in somehow, some way, whether it's the culture, the building, the markets, the mechanics, whatever it may be, these are fantastic games that reflect wonderfully of those cities and may bring some information to your table. All right, Anthony, so why don't you start us off with number 10? All right, yeah, first on my list is a relatively recent game, uh, Gu Gong. So this is a game about China in the 16th century under the Ming Dynasty, and specifically uh, in the Forbidden City, Gu Gong. So you will go there as an official and exchange gifts and try to basically curry favor and get what you're trying to get out of the um, central government in China. So it's very interesting. Uh, and the mechanic of being able to swap those cards and manage your hands so carefully, it, it offers a lot of interesting um, uh, gameplay options. Game's not too heavy, but it does a good job and it's very visually engaging, especially the Kickstarter edition. So it uh, does, does a good job of representing that city in the historical era. Our number nine game is Yido. Yido, also known as Ido in obviously in modern times, Tokyo, is all about gaining favor from the Shogun. So what you're trying to do in this game is you're trying to gain influence and gain a private audience in front of the Shogun by gaining resources throughout the game, luxury goods from European merchants, and some, some cunning actions as you fight off rival clans and there's assassinations and adversaries. The game has a pretty medium weight heft to it if you've played Lords of Waterdeep before, but you want something a little heavier and a beautiful production, you know something definitely to check out. All right, number eight is Troyes. Troyes is about the uh, French city of Troyes in the Champagne region. It takes place technically over the course of about 400 years, and you will be rolling dice, which represent different people in the city, and then trying to access and utilize different cards that represent the religion, military and kind of civil authority of the city so the game's a little bit abstracted of course it's a euro but the artwork does a very good job of representing the the medieval era in france and there's a lot of interesting um kind of flow between like the the different threats that come in and how you have to fight them back and how everybody has to work together and then also how you can kind of just pay for other people to come work for you <laughs> and they're not willing to work for their own uh player so that is trois it's a great game that kind of represents a city and a time period that you don't see a whole bunch uh, in board games. our number seven game is coimbra coimbra is a fantastic game about a city in portugal between the 15th and 16th century during the age of discovery it's all about being a powerful house in which you're trying to gain connections with the monasteries of the time the different merchants and especially the scholars of the area. So you'll be journeying around, visiting nearby monasteries, employing different craftspeople to the trade, and rolling dice and placing dice based upon their color and their activation. Fantastic production here, great components, and a really engaging game. That's our number seven game, Coimbra. All right, number six is London, specifically London Second Edition from Martin Wallace. This is a game in which you are going to build a tableau of different uh, individuals that will represent your city. And then you are going to run the city 
and take all the different actions on those cards at the same time. But you will also be building up the kind of negative victory points that happen when you do this. So you have to kind of manage that, be able to get rid of them. You'll generate additional points and resources by putting different locations out from London. The original game had a map. This game has cards that also go into your tableau. And there are loans, of course, because it is a Martin Wallace game. And it does kind of represent the the economic impact of building up the city um, in those decades after the Great Fire. So that is why London is number six on our list. Number five is St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg is all about the Tsar Peter laying the cornerstone for the first building in St. Petersburg. Now, you are here to build up the buildings, engage with the nobility in order to gain victory points, utilizing merchants that are going to help you get the necessary rubles you need in order to gain the most victory points and win the game. By employing craftspeople's buildings and aristocrats throughout the game, you'll be able to build a fantastic St. Petersburg. That's why St. Petersburg is our number five. All right, number four on the list is Teotihuacan, City of Gods. This is one of my favorite games from the last couple of years, and one of the reasons for that is that it does such a good job of visually and mechanically kind of representing this city and the pyramid that was the center of this city in pre-Columbian civilization. So you are going around and completing these different tasks and trying to generate goods and ultimately build up this pyramid at the center of the table as you move through the three different eras of the civilization, specifically in this city, which just really kind of is an iconic uh, representation of that culture. So Teotihuacan is a fantastic game that represents the city very well and is our number four game. Our number three game is Bruges. In the 15th century, Bruges was all about culture and commerce and being able to deal with the wealthy craftspeople who came into the area. By employing different people into your town, whether they be craftspeople, artisan, or royalty, you'll gain victory points, you'll gain extra workers, and by using these multi-use cards, you'll be able to gain the most victory points by dealing with the dices, dealing with the plagues that come out throughout the game. It's a truly engaging game, especially with its expansion. That's why it's our number three game, Bruges. All right, number two on the list, a game that comes up on our list fairly frequently, uh, is Lisboa. This is a game about the reconstruction of Lisboa after the Great Earthquake of 1755, which more or less destroyed the city. Specifically, uh, Vital Lacerda injects the game with all sorts of theme and history representing that time, from the king putting the uh, Marquis of Pombal in charge of um, rebuilding the city to the way the map is laid out and how you're removing rubble and building up these different pieces in the actual city quarters. Lisboa does a fantastic job of representing the historical era, but also the way the city was structured, the artwork and uh, feel of the time. And it's just a fantastic experience all around where you really get the theme of what it was like to have to rebuild from this horrible uh, disaster that impacted uh, this part of Portugal so much. So that is Lisboa. And our number one game is San Juan. The That's all about building up San Juan. In San Juan, you are using your cards in a multitude of different ways in order to build buildings that are going to be able to produce you indigo, sugar, tobacco, coffee, and silver. And then you have these violet buildings that are going to be able to gain you victory points and special abilities by building up the different city areas. It's just a really fantastic game. It came out as a second edition that it even improved upon the game. And it's just so 
elegant in its play. You have that one simple deck that allows you to build this wonderful, wonderful city of Puerto Rico. It's a fantastic game. Picking those different actions is always leads to different strategies. And that's why our number one game is San Juan. All right, so there you go. Our top 10 games in cities. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you a seat at the table. member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com.